I, I love questions. And so I asked for a service and Jeff, I'm just going to ask how many crumble cookies do you have to buy to get $10 worth of crumble cash? Like lots, a lot. Okay. So I just was curious, like it's probably like hundreds of cookies. Um, and then he knew all the other places. Like, so Jeff's got your cookie hookup, um, or cookie up. Um, but my name's Nate. I'm one of the pastors. We are continuing on in our story and our journey through the book of Daniel. And so as you make your way to Daniel chapter five this morning, I just kind of wanted to give you a little insight on weekends where it's my turn to preach, where I have the honor and privilege of opening up the word and worshiping with us together through whatever passage we're walking through. Um, just so you guys know, like this isn't the first time or for 11 o'clock, the second time I've said that, I've said this, there is a significant amount of time and preparation that I invest in to study and pray and then practice. And for me, my preferred rhythm is I wake up early on a Saturday morning and I come here and I practice my sermon to an empty auditorium. Um, to an empty sanctuary. It's awesome because nobody ever disagrees with me or gives me angry looks. Um, but yesterday I was on my way here to practice and I hadn't quite had my level of dosage of coffee yet. So I decided to stop at a gas station and, and grab a cup of coffee. And I went in and this was, it was like 545 in the morning on a Saturday. That's how much I love you guys. Um, and I was walking out and it was just like the sun was just starting to come up and the sky was like alive in colors of pinks and blues and oranges. And, and there was just this gentle fall breeze and all you could hear because most likely the entire city was asleep. Like it's 545 on a Saturday and so it's quiet. And I just heard the rustling of the leaves and just enjoyed. And I just paused for a moment. And I'll confess, normally I'm quick to hop in my car and go on to the next thing. Like it's not like I'm some deep contemplative human being. I just, for whatever reason, felt prompted to pause, take a deep breath, and rest. And in that moment, I found myself caught up in I was just marveling that God who owes me nothing would give me in the heart of this city that I love deeply this moment where I got to be in awe of him and just taste a little bit of his beauty and splendor. And it came with an exile. And then as I got in my car and I made my way here, I kept my radio off and I just started praying. And in those, like I live on a bad day, I live six minutes from here. So in the four minutes it took me to get here, because I paused for a moment and exhaled and had this really beautiful moment of worship, just enjoying God's creation and God's beauty. And I'd slowed my mind and heart down just a little bit as I drove here, the spirit of the living God began to show me, not in a strong-armed, condemning way, but in a beautiful, grace-filled moment with my God. All of the ways, because this morning we're going to talk about pride. 
And what the Lord did was show me how pride had been present in my story this past week over and over and over. And in that moment, I was convicted, I confessed, and I worshiped through the fact that this story is not resting on me. But rather, in that moment, as my heart was examined by the Spirit of God, I was caught up into the beauty that is the gospel. That our story this morning is not about you and I trying harder and doing better, but resting in the fact that, man, Jesus has paid it all. But it started with taking a moment to be thoughtful, to exhale and examine where my mind and heart were at. And so I'm going to ask us this morning, before we dive into Daniel 5, just take a couple of deep breaths. I don't know what you came in here with, what's been weighing on your mind and heart this week. All of us have varying levels of distractions and tough circumstances that we're going through. I want this to be a moment where we just we allow the Spirit of God, not Nate's words, but the Spirit of God to examine our souls through Daniel chapter 5. So let's just take one more breath. Forget about lunch plans. I don't know if there's way too long for lunch plans anyway. For, forget about tomorrow's distractions. And pray with me. Father, I thank you that we have the amazing opportunity to thoughtfully engage. And so, Jesus, I pray that over these next few moments, that your spirit would be present here. God, that you would sift our hearts and show us, Lord, where we have been far from you, and God, where you're drawing us close. God, places where maybe we've allowed pride to callous our hearts. Give us the beauty of your grace. Jesus, I pray that we would all have ears to hear and eyes to see how magnificent you are. Lord, would your conviction just sweeten grace this morning. God, would it draw our hearts together in worship of you, our most high God and King. It is in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, we saw a story of a king humbled in Nebuchadnezzar. We saw that God, God took hard circumstances and humbled a proud king. And we saw these beautiful bookends of a proclamation as at the beginning of Daniel 4 and at the end of Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar's life has so been transformed by the beauty of grace that he can't help but stand up and say, the most high God has done amazing signs and wonders and that his rule, his dominion, his reign goes over all kings and kingdoms, over generation to generation. And there has been through hard circumstances a humbling of a proud king. And in a lot of ways this morning, the story that we're going to pick up on, as time has passed, Daniel is now an old man. He is going to have an opportunity 
to enter in with a different king under a different set of stressful circumstances. And the danger that we are going to be to, going to see this morning is that the pride that was rooted out of Nebuchadnezzar's life has a very different response and circumstance in the king's name of Belshazzar. Siri keeps wanting me to say things. It's driving me bonkers. Um, but Belshazzar, which I got to be honest, Nebuchadnezzar last week, Belshazzar this week. I went to I, I went to seminary, but I'm not doing that. When I talk about him, I'm going to call him Shazzy because um, that just rolls off the tongue a little bit better. And actually, just to make sure I wasn't cussing at y'all because I don't know what Shazzy means in like urban, like cool language. I went to Urban Dictionary and it just means somebody who's like crushing it and living their best life and got everything kind of going for them. And so what we're going to see is Shazzy kind of starts out living up to his name this morning. But we're going to see the danger of pride in his story and that for us, my hope and prayer is that we would not continue in the sin of Shazzy this morning. And so let's jump in. Again, time has passed. Let's read the first few verses as we're going to see a few dilemmas and a few decisions that are made this morning. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar, or Shazzy, for those of us who want to refer to him as that, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Notice the repetition here in verse 3. Then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lord, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. Again, repetition in verse 4. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. The first dilemma that is going to be, and we've seen this pattern throughout the first few chapters of Daniel, that there's a dilemma, dilemma, a decision, and then a declaration that is made about who God is. The first dilemma in Shazzy's story is he is strong in his rebellion. Just for a, mo a moment, imagine how much space and how much money would be required to throw a party for a thousand people. Like, this is a huge event. And history would tell us that at this time, again, last week in Nebuchadnezzar's story, he is enjoying a season of rest, a season of no battle, no war, no conflict. When God comes and begins to give him this long-standing nightmare that plagues him until the point where he brings in Daniel to interpret this difficult dream and then is driven by uh, driven out kind of into the wilderness. He's driven and more like an animal than he is like a man for a season to produce humility in his heart. We saw that that all came about during a season of rest. History would tell us, my voice is going out, or, or puberty's finally hitting. Um, history would tell us that during this season, Shazzy's kingdom is under attack. Persia is advancing. And he is so unconcerned with the state of his kingdom that when he should be preparing troops for battle, 
when he should be fortifying walls, he's throwing a party. He's so proud and arrogant in his kingdom's ability and his ability to lead that when he should be getting ready, he's getting a little tipsy. And then he amped up the rebellion by going into a sacred space where they had objects of worship. They were such a polytheistic culture that when they would conquer a known uh, known nation or ruler that had different gods, they would keep their sacred artifacts just in case at some point they needed to call on that God. And Nebuchadnezzar and the other kings had treated this space with respect. But Shazi here has no respect for the Most High God. And so he takes objects that are meant for worship and uses them for wickedness. Or to think of it maybe a little bit different, he takes sacred objects and turns them in to red solo cups. He starts drinking from things that are meant to draw our hearts and affection up to God, to worship Him and adore Him and love Him. And He's so prideful in His rebellion that literally with His hands, He says, God, I'm going to control you. I'm going to take things that were meant for your worship and use them for my pleasure and purpose. This is a strong rebellion. And then the danger here is we see that pride is not only callousing his heart, it's also creating a callous on the hearts of those who are following in that they start to follow in his footsteps. And what started out as a wild party, by the end of verse 4, notice they begin to praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, stone, wood, and iron. It ends up in this wicked worship service. They end up worshiping false gods with things that are meant to declare the goodness and beauty and worship of the most high God. I want us to see the pride and the rebellion and the darkness that is that is the dilemma Belshazzar finds himself in, finds himself enjoying in this moment. And and here's what I want us to do all along the story this morning. I'm going to ask us to be thoughtful, to exhale and allow the Spirit of God to examine our souls. So as we think about the pride and the rebellion that we see in these first four verses, let's thoughtfully engage. When was the last time you sat with your own rebellion? You examined your story and said, where am I proud Where am I taking things and saying, God, I'm going to use good things that are meant to draw my worship up to you, and I'm going to use them for my pleasure and purposes. That's the sin of Shazi. I want us to thoughtfully exhale and allow the Spirit to show you places where pride has been callousing you, creating a callous towards the beauty of grace, hardening your heart so that you think, man, I don't need God. I don't need his word. I can do this on my own. That's the danger of pride. Now, maybe you're walking in here this morning and you're going, I know my pride. I see my pride. You're crushing it. I apologize. We don't have a a rack out there for you to hang your cape up on as a super Christian. And I'm so grateful that you grace us with your presence. And I'm sorry we're messing it up for you. 
Um, but if that's you this morning, if you're like, I'm awesome at being humble. Here's where I want to press us this morning, though. Maybe, maybe nothing quickly comes to your mind. Praise God. Praise God that he's working in your story, that he's breaking your pride, that you're walking in humility. I honestly, as, as, uh, sarcasm is my native tongue, but I'm honestly, that's amazing. How are you thoughtfully engaging with others around you who are struggling with pride in your life? As we walk through this story, we're going to see people engaged with a guy stuck in rebellion, arrogant in his rebellion, and they're going to move towards him relationally. And so if you're crushing it this morning, that's fantastic. Praise God. How are we thoughtfully engaging with others who are strong in rebellion? Not just sitting up on our high towers, but building relationships with those who think and believe and act differently, who are still in a rebellious state. God didn't just save you to set you apart. He saved you to send you to make a difference. The way that I say it often, and eventually the other pastors are going to remember it, I believe in them. I have high hopes. Wherever you live, workshop, eat, and play, you're going to get there. God has you there on purpose for a purpose. And it's so that you can move towards those who are still far from God. That's what Jazzy here desperately needs. Because he's in a dilemma where he's stuck in his rebellion. And we're going to see that also is going to create a second dilemma as the party is raging. Let's pick up in verse 5. It says, Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, Opposite the, the lampstand. This is in a very well-lit area. There's no mistaking that something miraculous is taking place. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise, to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have chains of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. We see that he is strong. He is enjoying sin. He is enjoying his rebellious state. And then God miraculously is going to intervene. And it is going to create a panic and a fear in Shazzy that he doesn't know what to do with. He sees this hand, hand show up and start writing on the wall this undecipherable message. And we talked about this last week with Nebuchadnezzar. The reason it's so concerning when a king or a leader would get a vision or a dream or something miraculous would happen is it was believed that the gods were sending a signal to prepare the leaders to rally the troops to start taking action in a direction. And it was the king's responsibility to decipher and figure out this miraculous moment. And so it panicked Nebuchadnezzar and then his successor, Belshazzar has a similar miraculous intervention. This time it's not a dream. It's writing on the wall and he can't figure out what's going on. And here's where I want us to just pay close attention to the passage. Notice that Belshazzar is guilty 
or rather, uh, he has been, um, let me think, how do I want to say this? He is following in the footsteps of those who have come before him. We've seen throughout the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar would come, and when he would have a moment of panic and fear, he would gather all the wise men together. He would say, tell me what I want to hear. Give me some answers so I know what to do. And somewhere along the way, Shazi was picking up what Nebuchadnezzar was passing on. Because that's exactly what he does. And if I could just get on a soapbox for just a moment, this is free with the cost of admission. We'll get back to the sermon in a moment. I want us to be a church that cares deeply about the next generation. If you were with us last week, again, we bookended the service with this public proclamation of how God rules and reigns from generation to generation. And so what's happening on the other side of this wall, where your younger kids are at, is not childcare. It's raising up the next generation. We're training an army. What happens on Wednesday night with middle schoolers and Sunday night with high schoolers is not youth group, purity police. We're training up an army. We, I desperately want us to be a church that sees the next generation because God rules from generation to generation. And so it's on us. This is our time. I feel like the Goonies. This is our time to pass the baton well. What are we going to do with it? Shazzy here was passed on. When you are fearful, you gather up some people and you ask them to tell you what you want to hear. He had taken notice. And so high schoolers, middle schoolers, younger kids, like, I see you. I am incredibly for you. And I want us to empower and raise you up to go further and do better than we have done. And so for my grown-ups in the room, like, let's be a people. Here's my challenge to you this week. And I just pray that the Lord would do this in your heart always. As you drive around and you see high schools, middle schools, elementary schools, charter schools, those buildings where kids go on the front lines every day and are influenced for the decisions they are going to make, would we just be a people who would pray? And then when you find yourself in a restaurant or at a bowling alley and you're next to students and teenagers who get loud and rambunctious, let's not be those people who go, oh, can you believe they're acting like we did when we were their age? Ugh, they're so loud and having a fun time. And why can't they be boring adults like we are? Let's pray and move towards that. Let's be a church that cares about the next generation because they're watching. That's what we see here is he had watched his predecessor and he picked up patterns and habits. And so he's in a tough spot. He's stuck. He's paralyzed in fear. And he goes, this is what I've seen done. It's what I'll do. I'll gather the wise men and the enchanters and the astrologers and the Chaldeans, and I'll hope that they'll give me the right answer. And then when they can't, he freaks out all the more. Fear is paralyzing for Shazi. That's his second dilemma. Because he enjoyed his sin, the minute he realized how small he was, he had no clue what to do, and he was paralyzed in fear. So let's exhale. Where have you 
some of you have been so overwhelmed by your circumstances and you've maybe been living in sin to the point that when God starts to show up and intervene, you don't know what to do next. It's like allow the Spirit to examine and say, why are you stuck in that place? Is it because you don't understand and see God rightly? We talked a lot about that last week, that when we see God for who He is, we are empowered and able to engage boldly. And so as we thoughtfully engage, God, where are you afraid? Is it because you're not seeing Jesus rightly as King and Lord over your circumstances? But again, maybe you're crushing it. And you're like, I'm, I'm not afraid of nothing. I know First John, God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. You're right, amen, hallelujah. Let's pass the plate. How are you moving towards those who are stuck in fear. The king is in a bad spot. He's enjoyed his sin. He's stuck in fear. He needs somebody to move towards him. God has intervened in a powerful way, but he doesn't know what to do with it. And so he needs some outside counsel and assistance. And the first person that's going to make a decision to move towards the king maybe is an unlikely hero in the context of Daniel's day where the queen is going to come in. And let's look at the decision she makes and the advice that she gives the king in verse 10. It says, The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, to whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. The decision the queen makes is she hears her king, her husband, and clearly this is not a faithful husband. We already were told that he had a lot of concubines and many other wives, but there's something different about the queen. It doesn't seem like she was at the party. And she hears that the queen is having a hard moment. In our house, we call it having a nutty. Like he's freaking out. And she comes and pursues him. And I love the wisdom that we have here from her that she starts out. Remember, he's been drinking, he's been partying, and now he's terrified by the hand of God. And her first thing is to start to lower his defenses. O king, live forever. She lets him know, I'm not a threat. I'm here for you. She says, you don't have to be afraid. And then in her wisdom here, she makes a decision to remind him of what God has done in the past in his kingdom through his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, and through Daniel. That Nebuchadnezzar used Daniel to interpret dreams. And if you were in here at the beginning of service, we read Daniel 2, where Daniel proclaims that that in God is the light dwells. In God, all wisdom and understanding flows. That there's something that comes only from God. That it's discernment, wisdom, uh, signs, wonders, might, 
all of the power, all of the glory, it all comes from God. And I love here that the queen acknowledges there's something special about Daniel. And we talked about this last week, but it bears repeating. What's special about Daniel is not the books that he's read, the classes he's taken, the podcasts he's listened to. It's not that he just has an extra level of swagger. It's the spirit of God that is present in Daniel's story. He proclaimed in Daniel 2, all light, wisdom, and understanding, well, that comes from God. And here in Daniel 5, she says, wisdom, light, and understanding, it, it, it just kind of comes through this guy. What makes you unique wherever you live, work, shop, eat, and play is not the classes you've taken. It's not the years of experience you have in your field. It's not how awesome you are. It's the Spirit of God that is helping you to engage boldly and thoughtfully wherever He has you. She recognizes that there's something different about how Daniel has interpreted dreams, and she reminds the king, you have this available to you. I wonder this morning, when was the last time that that's enough for you? You examined your life, and you were reminded of how God has moved in your past, in your story. When was the last time you looked back and said, man, God, you did great things here, 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 and here. And my guess is if you examine those moments, they're probably moments of pain that God has turned into moments of grace. There were probably moments where you came to the end of yourself, where you were either stuck in fear or stuck in rebellion, and God miraculously intervened. And now you look back and you go, wow, that was incredible. We need to be reminded of what God has done in the past. And again, maybe you're, you're sitting here going, man, I journaled yesterday and reflected, and it was awesome. Praise the Lord. How are you helping others remember God's goodness and God's story? We need to not just be thoughtfully engaged with ourselves, but with those around us. The king or the queen moves towards the king. Again, it's going, man. Um, and she reminds him of what God has done through Daniel, that he's able to offer an interpretation. And so now the king is going to be forced to make a decision. What is he going to do with this outside counsel? Is he open to teaching or is he closed off? Let's see in verse 13. It says, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. The dude just heard that from his wife. Like, he's trying to take credit. Like, he's heard of his reputation. Like, the wife literally just whispered in his ear, and he's trying to play to Daniel's pride. I don't believe it for a second. He says, now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. He says, I've got this rewards and recognition program. It's ready to go. If you can give me the answer that I want to hear, 
I've got you. My, my pride that is callousing my heart towards the beauty of grace, I'm still in control. But notice, he is willing to listen to outside counsel for a moment. He listens to his wife. He listens to the queen. He invites Daniel in and says, I've heard things about you. Would you be able to interpret? And so he makes a decision to listen to somebody who thinks differently and believes differently than he does. He's going to be unmoved by the response that he's going to get. But I do want us for just a moment to thoughtfully engage the fool and the vain. Are you open to outside counsel and perspective? Who in your life thinks differently than you do and pushes you to maybe think differently or deeply about things? Or do you surround yourself with people who just reinforce your position that hasn't worked for Shazzy, and so he's open to somebody else speaking into his life? And then if, if you have tons of people who believe and think differently, that's, that's great. How are you moving towards those who maybe need a different perspective, who are trying the same thing over and over and over and getting the same results? How are you prayerfully and thoughtfully engaged with others saying, man, could, could, I, could I move towards you in relationship and then maybe offer a different way, offer a different solution to this problem? The king receives that, but he's not going to do much with it. But the king's decision then is going to force Daniel to make a decision. How is he going to answer the question of can you give an interpretation? And I marvel at Daniel's wisdom. In verse 17, it says, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Friends, you can keep your perk package. I'm not in this for money and fame. I don't want it. My integrity is more important. He says, Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. He has a confidence that he can and will interpret the writing on the wall. But first, he's going to decide, you've asked me a question, but I'm going to share with you a story. You want a solution. Instead, I'm going to give you a story. I'm going to remind you of what God has done in the past. You, you just want a quick answer, but instead, I need to remind you of how awesome the Most High God is. And so look at the story he tells the king. He says in verse 18, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, pride had calloused his heart towards the beauty of grace, Nebuchadnezzar, um, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was that of wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. 
Why did all of this happen to Nebuchadnezzar? Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Daniel makes a decision not to outright answer the question, can you interpret it? He says, instead, I need to declare the goodness of my God. You don't need an answer. You need a savior. You don't need the interpretation. You need to see the most high God and be reminded of what he has done. That God humbles the proud. That pride is serious. And God has been in the pattern of breaking down pride. And I just wonder, are we engaged and willing to examine our hearts and our stories and see where we need to be open to outside counsel? Where we need to be open to outside advice? What is our response when we're asked, hey, would would you be able to do this? Are we the type of people who are so filled with the Spirit of God that when we're asked for advice, what comes out of us is let's make some changes? Not let me give you my opinions and my beliefs and my when asked, can you? He says, I can, but first I gotta brag about God. First I gotta talk about what he's done. I so want us to be a people that when we're asked, what comes out is Jesus. That we're thoughtfully engaged, that God is moving in our story, and that we are a people who are quick to share the story of what God is doing, and then looking for ways to share that with others. And so Daniel makes that decision, and now he is going to declare the seriousness of, of sin. And if you were with us last week and I offended you, when I asked us and prompted us to be a people who prayerfully engage, and we thought so much of our most high God, that if any part of us celebrated delivering bad news to our leaders and authority, and I was one, like I legitimately confess, like there was a part of me that was like, it would be so fun to tell off our leaders where I disagree with them. That reveals we're not seeing God as the ruler over kings and kingdoms. And if that was offensive to you, maybe I can win you back a little bit and then possibly offend you a little bit more. But I love you enough, and I want us to be a church that when asked, Jesus is what comes out. Because Daniel here is about to deliver some incredibly hard news to the king. And last week we saw the context of the relationship was such that when he had to deliver bad news to the king, he was broken. And I prompted us to be a people who prayed and believed big things about our God and were, were trusting that God is sovereign over all kings and kingdoms, including ours. But today, Daniel is going to deliver essentially a death sentence to the king. And there's no brokenness. There's no, I wish this was for somebody else. There's not the context of 
relationship. And so we're going to read the incredibly hard words. And let me just prompt us to be a people who thoughtfully engage. And there are times and places where we have to stand up and say, sin is serious and we're not taking it anymore. And we need to be an involved people, a passionate people for God's word and God's truth. And when it hits that point, we shouldn't be afraid to say hard words. And Daniel is going to say incredibly hard words to his leader. But I want us to notice the context of how he delivers that hard news. Let's read. Verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. He's going to restate his sin. And you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, you've drunk wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Your sin is offensive to God. He declares this in front of the king. It could take his life at any moment. Then from his presence, the hand was set. He's now going to answer the question. Can you interpret this? And this writing was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, he, he makes singular a plural word that is writing on the wall. He personalizes this for Belshazzar. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Daniel's decision, Daniel's declaration here is sin is serious. And so he doesn't mince words. He stands for truth. He declares wickedness as being wicked. But this is not done around the water cooler. He didn't take to Twitter and tweet about the wickedness of Belshazzar. He doesn't take over a small group to talk about how horrible the king is. He looks the king in the face and they have a conversation. And so if you feel so passionately that things in our world are going bad and I need to stand for truth, I applaud you. Get involved. Have a conversation. Let's start here in Loveland. Let's get involved. Do you know how hard it is to have a conversation with some of our city council members? I emailed one. We had lunch on Wednesday. Super easy. We're not that big of a town. It's not that hard to have a conversation. Let's get involved. Let's make a difference. Let's stand for truth. Let's be bold in our faith. Let's be engaged in our story. But let's do it in the context of a conversation. I don't think it does any good to rally a bunch of people who just think like we do and get more and more angry. Let's move towards our city. Let's move towards our nation. Let's be a people who are serious about sin and its consequence, but let's do it in the form of a conversation. Daniel is a slave, and he finds ways to have a conversation with the king because the Spirit of God is in him. The Spirit of God is in us. Let's get involved. Let's make a difference. Let's get after it. This is too important. We're giving the baton to the next generation. And so let's pray and engage thoughtfully. Let's not just rally together and get super angry. Let's do something. Let's have some conversations. Email some people. Move towards people who disagree. Move towards those who are in power. Let's get involved and stand for truth 
in a way that maybe, just maybe, God might use to transform this king and kingdom. He's big enough. He can do it. Daniel declares that sin is serious. Let's look quickly at his interpretation. Goodness gracious. Eventually, I'm going to preach one sermon, not six. Um, Today's not that day. Look at the interpretation. Mene, God has numbered your days. God has literally identified Belshazzar. You have a beginning and an end. Tekel says that he's looked at your good and your bad, and it's found that your scales are not even. You are found wanting. You're in trouble. Your sin outweighs your good deeds. And then finally, um, Perez, your kingdom is coming to an end. Your sin has serious consequences. Literally, it's going to cost you everything that's been built up, everything that's been provided and protected uh, for you. It's going to be taken from you. Sin is serious, and the pride in his life has so calloused his heart that he is blind to the beauty of grace. God's hand graciously came down and wrote a warning on the wall, and the king cannot see it. And we know that because looking at verse 29 through the end of our chapter, we see God is going to make a bold declaration. Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the ruler, the third ruler in the kingdom. Our king is completely unmoved by the, he just got a death sentence because of his sin. And he's like, I'm still, I'm still in control. I'm going to give you gold. I'm going to give you a fancy robe. I'm still the giver of everything. I still have all the power, pride is still all over the king. This has not produced humility in his story one bit. And look at what happens, 30. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. History will tell us that while this party is going on and he is rejecting what God is trying to do and saying, I'm gonna stare you face to face on my own. In a lot of ways, Shazzy here gets exactly what he wants. He wants to stand before God, mano e gato, and he loses. And history would tell us that while this party is going on, the Persian army sneaks under the walls through a dry riverbed and essentially crumbles the, the rulers of the world in one night. This is how Daniel tells us about the fall of the Babylonian Empire. Because what we see, God's declaration in taking the life of the king, because pride has calloused his heart, we see, and this is how, for those of you who call redemption home, you know how important this next point is to me, because I'm willing to break alliteration over it. Tell me the spirit doesn't move. Callousness, callous hearts are catastrophic. Every other point started with us. I still had to alliterate the last one. Love you. Um, it costs him everything. And so my concern for us, maybe you're in here and you've been following Jesus for a long time. But there's probably places in your story where you have become callous. You said, God, you can't move and work in this way. I so believe this, I so operate this way, this is who I am, this is what I'm about. 
but you're not even open to God's grace impacting that area anymore. Or maybe you're so stuck in fear over what your current circumstance is that you don't believe God is big enough to make a difference. And we can grow callous towards the beauty of grace. What I love about this chapter is it really breaks up into, to, into really a couple of different points where we see that fear and sin cause us to be broken and stuck. And then there's this intervention of God and people that produce in this story a catastrophic result. But the beauty of the gospel is that you and I are stuck in pride and fear, and we have a divine intervention from the person of Christ, and we have a choice to make. Are we going to allow the beauty of grace to wash over us and to be taken from death to life, or like the sin of Shazzy, are we going to say, no, I got this on my own? Let's not be a people who do that. Let's be a people who allow the Spirit of God to examine every area of our story and show us where we 